Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 72, produced 12 September 2020. Perhaps nothing in the world says Scotland more universally than tartan. It is the symbolic national dress and the one subject we've dedicated more time to here on this podcast than any other. Yet while Scotland is dotted with whiskey distilleries, heritage museums, art centers, woolen mills, castles, and more, all offering tours and unique visitor experiences, there is no national tartan center in all of Scotland. I'm Glenn Moyer, and to find a National Tartan Museum, you have to visit not Scotland, but the United States, where in Franklin, North Carolina, you'll find the Scottish Tartans Museum and Heritage Center. In a moment, we'll do just that. Travel to North Carolina for a visit with the museum's curator about its history, its collection, and its future. That's all coming up here, Under the Tartan Sky. Are you .scot yet? .scot is the domain for the worldwide community of Scots. It became available to the public in late 2014 and is used by the Scottish Government and Parliament, the National Health Service in Scotland and thousands of other organisations and individuals around the globe. .scot doesn't mind where you live or what kind of Scottish connection you have. If you're Scottish by birth, heritage or affinity, or an association that practices and promotes Scottish arts and culture, or a business with some kind of Scottish connection, then .scot is for you. Best of all, it's easy to sign up to. Simply visit domains.scot, choose your domain name, and you're off and running. And, by the way, if you're just looking for a wee blather, our email service will help you do that too. .scot. Be part of it. Nothing says Scotland quite like tartan. The colorful, crisscross patterned fabric is considered the symbolic national dress of the land. While the wearing of tartan dates back hundreds of years, the care and registration of the thousands of distinct tartan patterns is a relatively recent phenomenon. The popularized clan tartans so many are familiar with today were largely a creation of an invented tradition created in the mid-19th century when patterns were designed and artificially assigned to Scottish clans and families. A first attempt at naming and registering tartans was begun in 1815 by the Highland Society of London. Later, such a caretaker role was passed between many individual organizations and took many forms, like the Scottish Tartans World Registry, the International Tartan Index, and perhaps originally the Scottish Tartan Society's Register of All Publicly Known Tartans. Today, the role of maintaining an official list of tartans falls to the Scottish Register of Tartans, part of the Scottish Government, established by legislative action by the Scottish Parliament, but only as recently as 2008. The Scottish Tartans Authority, which supplanted the Scottish Tartan Society back in 1996, remains as the only non-governmental body dedicated to preserving, promoting, and protecting tartan, although they no longer act as a registry. The original Scottish Tartan Society, that was dedicated to the recording and preservation of woven tartan designs, is now a defunct organization. First formed in 1963, the society existed for about 40 years. Given the significance of tartan in Scottish culture and history, 
it is more than a bit puzzling why there is no National Tartan Visitor Center or Museum in Scotland. There was earnest conversation about such an idea back around 2015 when the Tartans Authority went so far as to commission a feasibility study. Their website indicates Sterling was chosen as a location for such a center and promises, quote, we will keep you up to date with progress, end quote. But judging from the website, it would appear little progress has been made. Ironically, we have the earlier Scottish Tartan Society to thank for establishing the Scottish Tartans Museum and Heritage Center, not in Scotland, but here in the USA. Daniel Williamson is the curator of the museum, established by the STS to be a center for reliable information on Scottish Highland dress traditions within the United States. While so many today credit Outlander with awakening their affinity for Scotland, for Williamson, 25 years ago, it was a different piece of cinema that inspired him. And that, of course, was the movie Braveheart. Williamson first encountered the museum as a visitor in May of 1998 during a college break year when he and his parents were moving from Florida to North Carolina. A third-generation American of Scottish ancestry, he worked originally as a volunteer, then part-time employee, and onward and upward to curator, thanks in large part to his proposal to expand the museum to include Scottish history and heritage. We'll have more about that later. As the only national tartan museum of its kind, I asked Daniel to take us back to the earliest days, to the founding of the museum by the then Scottish Tartans Society. Back in the late 80s, 1980s, um, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Gordon Teal of Chellock, he was the uh, Laird of Chellock and the Baron of Huntley. He was also the president of the Scottish Tartan Society. Okay, The Tartan Society no longer exists. He was also very heavily involved with the Scottish Tartans Museum that was there in Scotland at the time, because there was one a heritage center or a Tartan center in Scotland at the time. And uh, he wanted to bring a, um, a branch of that museum to the United States. And he happened to like Western North Carolina. He was very into bluegrass music. He liked the mountains uh, some of it reminded him of Scotland. Um, and originally the museum, the, the American branch, ended up in Highlands, North Carolina, which is in the same county that Franklin is in, which is it's Macon County. Um, and it was there from 1988 till about 1993, 94. In 94, it moved to Franklin. So we've been in Franklin ever since. And so... I can't remember the exact year uh, because I wasn't with the museum at the time, but at a certain point, the, uh, the Tartan center there closes in Scotland. And I want to say that it's somewhere between about 2008 and 2010. I want to say it's somewhere within there. I could be wrong. It might be a little bit before then. Um, that's also around the time that the Scottish Tartan Society kind of folds, I believe. And um, and then the Tartan's Authority uh, acquires all of the um, artifacts and things that the society had. And they sort of become the, uh, the lead 
in the uh, research and a recording of tartans at that time. But anyway, that's kind of how it happens is, is this guy by the name of Gordon Teal. Uh, he had the vision to bring a branch of the museum here. Uh, but since we were technically really independently run, um, when the other museum closed, we were still in operation at that time. And in fact, uh, that right around that time, the museum was actually doing quite well. So how did the original collection of the museum then come into being? Where did, where did all the original artifacts come from? Well, through uh, people connected to the Tartan Society. Um, some people donated items that they had acquired. Um, there were things that were on loan from the Tartan Society. In fact, uh, I want to say probably around 2012, or 2013, some of those, or all those items that were from them were boxed up and sent back to Scotland. Uh, but we have so much stuff now, we, we don't really even need anything uh, from the Tartan's authority at all, because um, that's who we, it was sent back to. Uh, but we get donations all the time. Uh, it Most people would be shocked to know some of the artifacts that have made their way to the United States that were held that, you know, family members held on to. Let's talk a little bit about that because um, I was going to ask how large is the museum collection today? And and what are some of the principal things that one would see on a visit to the museum? Well, um, our visit to the museum, and I'll I'll start with that, that answer because it's simpler than the, the first question you asked me. So um, the visit to our museum is it's expanded now so it's roughly about a total of 2,000 square feet it's on two floors and uh, the the first floor that you go through which is the top floor basically um, you you go through the early history of Scotland all the way up to the time of Mary Queen of Scots and and her son James and so that's sort of the core what I call the core of Scottish history that any American of Scottish ancestry is going to have that part of Scottish history in their background. And then when you go downstairs into our uh, gallery, that's down there, that is our Tartan era gallery. So it starts off with around 1600. So the time period of when the belted played or in Gallic, the Fillimore or the great rap, which is what it translates to in the layman's terms, great kilt kind of comes about and it takes us through all the way to modern times in the 20th and 21st century. So you'll have, we have a new military display that's in a 20 foot glass case um, that has uh, some reproduction stuff from reenactors but then uh, when you get into uh, the 19th century to the 20th century uh, artifacts, those are, well, actual artifacts. So we got stuff from um, World War One and World War Two in there from either Canadian Scottish regiments or, or actual Scottish regiments. Um, mm-hmm. We've got um, a, a really old artifact of a piece of cloth from... 1725 that's a tartan of course 
Uh, we have a reproduction of that cloth as well as a belted plate on a mannequin right next to it so that you can see what it would have looked like in full form. And we have a, a box pleated style kilt from the early 1800s. It's probably from around 1815 or 1820 I, I, off the top of my head. And, uh, and there's not that many of those artifacts floating around. Uh, the box pleat style kilt was in use from, uh, say, 1780s, 1790s uh, through the middle of the 1800s. And uh, we also have a, uh, I hope I say this right, a Kingusi plated kilt, <laughs> which there's only two artifacts of those in the world. And we have one of the two artifacts in our museum. And uh, it's a style of pleating where there's a box pleat in the middle in the back and then there's knife pleats going in either direction off to the side of that it's a very strange uh pleat um the other artifact is in the highland folk museum in scotland and uh that one's in the robertson tartan it's a really great find both of these uh these two kilts that i and and the other parts of the collection to them have been valued pretty high because of their rarity. So those are our, some of our um, expensive displays that we have. We also have a, um, a space tartans display, which we unveiled last year uh, in commemoration of the moon landing. So um, we have uh, different tartans from two of the astronauts that brought tartan with them when they went in the space. One of those I know is Alan Bean. Right. We have one of his swatches. Maybe you can settle the old argument because it's been written that Neil Armstrong took a, a bit of the Armstrong tartan to the moon, but I understand no one's ever really proven that. I, I have a feeling that's a rumor. Um, Jim spoke with Alan just before he sent that cloth to us, that piece of cloth, and he gave Jim a whole rundown on all kinds of stuff. And Jim never brought up anything about Neil Armstrong being, bringing any tartan with him. Um, now, for all we know, it's possible. You know, it, uh, sure. Bean was on the was on the next flight to the moon. He wasn't on the first flight, so um, he was the fourth person on the moon. Uh, Bean. So, um, who knows? Really. Um, now, the real interesting thing is, is about two, two and a half weeks after Bean sent us his swatch, he died. So um, that, that was like a very amazing to get that and, to, and for Jim to get a chance to speak to him, you know, hearing all about the heyday of, of you know, the, of, uh, of NASA, <laughs> you know, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, and, and yeah. Just, just amazing. And um, and then we got uh, uh, the astronaut Ross. Uh, last name is Ross. Jerry Ross. Jerry Ross. That's who it is. Yes. He has brought up several pieces of cloth of the different Ross tartans. So we have one of those uh, displays that, he, that had been made where it looks like a fan of five of the tartans. And so we have them. We have the certificates and all this stuff for all of these Um and we have a really great uh, framing, picture framing person here in town who made a display for us that was uh, probably like 40 by 40 inches. 
and uh, nice big letters, backlit, beautiful color photos, of course, the swatches and all that stuff in there. And is it's probably our our second most expensive display probably our, our military display is more expensive um in my estimation but uh that's it it really is one of those special things that we that we have in our museum and then we have other just you know different displays things that people donate us and um we've got rare book display we have a uh, a a crofters area where we have an old loom in there. We, we've set it up to look like it was maybe like 18th or 19th century Scotland where somebody was maybe, you know, weaving tartan in their house. And uh, we have a display for um, that's uh, has to do with the Scots Irish and their interaction with the Cherokee in the area. It's interesting to hear you talk about Alan Bean uh, and his tartan, because in, in my younger days as a television reporter, I had the opportunity to meet Alan Bean and interviewed him. And, and so many opportunities that, you know, I relate now to my Scottish ancestry that I had no clue at the time. You know, it didn't mean anything to me at the time. And I had no clue that he had Scottish ancestry either. So it's one of those, you know, oh, if I could only go back and redo that, um, that would have been great fun to talk with him about that, given my interest, um, obviously, in my ancestry today. What would you say is the most unusual, the most unexpected thing that people would come across in the museum that would make them go, oh, wow, I you know, never would have thought I'd see that here? I would have to say um, it's, it's in the early history area. That whole early area, that was my, um, what got me the gig was that expansion is which is the early area from from the neolithic time period through to um uh the time of saint mary queen of scots and her son james and it was trying to uh create a timeline of history and to show what the historical uh representation of clothing was during various eras to try to dispel the myth that the kilt had been around forever and ever and ever. So it's the displays in there that people come out and they say, Oh, you have, the, I, I didn't, you know, cause I have a William Wallace. I don't have our William Wallace in a kilt, obviously. And I have him dressed as a, a sort of like a country knight. And he's in chain mail and, and, you know, he's, He's got uh, Choss's pants on and uh, and stuff and you know and uh, he's got chainmail uh, coif and and all these things and there's a helmet in there and it's a there's a sword and there's a, a period dagger on him and you know all these little things that you know maybe people don't really know what they are and stuff like that um, and then around on the other side I have a the fifteen hundreds era. Um, display of clothing, which is probably the most unique uh, outfit that you that that people see because they don't really know what it is because it's never been represented in in film for Ireland or Scotland, and that's and that's a I have a boy mannequin wearing a a lanya, which is a a, a certain period shirt with big bell sleeves that you you hike the shirt up. Uh, so that it stops at the top of your knees. Um, I've got a um, 
vest that I made that's around him. That's kind of a, it's like a vested jacket, which is um, in Gaelic is an, is pronounced an inner, but it looks like it's spelled I and R. And, and I have his, uh, a brat around him, which is, which is just a, like a, um, like a blanket mantle or cloak, which was a common thing for people to wear at the time to keep them warm. And that is the most strange looking outfit that you see in, in the whole uh, museum. So if there was one thing that, um, that when people say would be weirdest thing, and most people don't even comment on that one. Most of the people think it's a girl that's there because of the way the clothing looks, huh. but it's, it's really a, that's a boy <laughs> a mannequin. <Yeah>. So, and, <laughs> and, and the, and the outfits are described right next to it uh, in a panel. Uh, but you know, most people don't read when they, when they go through museums anymore, they just look. <laughs> you talked about the fact that you get, donations rather frequently uh, how does that come about i mean do, are people just kind of digging through family stuff and find something and go oh you know the tartan museum might be interested in this some people do it that way but usually usually uh lately it's somebody dies okay and they find this stuff and they say oh my uncle or my granddad or my dad had all this stuff and um and it's like, we just don't want to sell it. It was like, we want to give it to you. So it's actually gotten to the point. I have almost no room to take any more large scale donations. Okay. Uh, which is kind of like, ah, I don't know. I'm kind of, kind of pulling my hair out of my head. I don't know what I'm going to do. So, but uh, <laughs> we're trying to be creative on how the storage, uh, the stuff that isn't out on display. And part of it is I'm, tr- I'm saying, I'm the first one to do this, but to set up uh, two displays that can be rotated. And uh, so there will be things that go out from time to time and come back and and whatnot. Uh, But we get, we get all kinds of donations, whether it's a book to a kilt, to a sword, to a dagger, to, uh, to money. And that's, and that's another thing that is also really helpful because being a small museum and a nonprofit, uh, it, it's hard to stay afloat these days and cash donations are sometimes the best donations that we, or, or check, you know, money donations are the, sometimes the best that we can get. Cause, uh, cause you, cause there, there really isn't a like grants that are out there that are Scottish related here in the United States to keep something like us going. Whereas most other museums, there's some sort of a uh, grant that's sort of aimed towards whatever it is they are to help keep them going. And some museums, they get really sizable grants annually. And uh, we don't get that. Um, there are grants that we do get for various things. And most of them are, are aimed at uh, building improvements. And we use those for improving things in our museum. Uh, we get some locally, and there's one from Scottish Heritage USA that we've been getting regularly. You mentioned the financing. I know the museum has faced some some challenges in its history, and, and one I gather was fairly recently. There was an attempt, uh, I think, a plan to purchase the building you're in, and that didn't come to pass, but you are successful in, in getting, I think, a long-term lease. But one way that people can support the museum, you do have a membership structure available. Um, 
where people can become, right. uh, obviously it's a dues paying membership. Tell me a little bit about that and, and the benefits of that. The building was purchased by someone that uh, is, is for the museum and so that we have a really good lease plan. So um, we were trying to purchase it ourselves uh, to be owned by, by us so we could do whatever we want. But it was just, it was just out of, it just wasn't going to happen. Right. But yes, we do have a membership, but we do, we have like a basic membership for a single person. We have family membership. Uh, one's called sustaining. I, there might be one more and then we have a lifetime membership. Let's go back to something you said earlier. You talked about, there is a segment of the museum where you talk about the interaction between the Scottish immigrants that came to the United States, settled in the North Carolina area, and their interaction with the Cherokee Indians. That brings me around to, obviously, to what everyone that is enchanted with Scotland nowadays is watching, and that is Outlander. And there has been a lot written about the Outlander effect and that it has had in Scotland, the increase in tourism. There are businesses that didn't exist five years ago over there right. that are now outlander tour businesses, et cetera, et cetera, filming locations and whatnot. Um, now, of course, in the last couple of seasons, the show, even though it's still filmed largely in Scotland, right. it is set in North Carolina and it gets into that interaction between the Scots and the Cherokee. So has the museum seen what what's been termed the outlander effect an increase in membership an increase in visitorship people that are outlander tv fans that maybe never thought about scotland prior to that i i would say so um uh it's it's not as big as the braveheart boom was back in the 90s but it, it is a it is definitely a help um you know it depends on the month the week the day there are some days that you'll have two people that will that come in through the door different from different parties of, of folks coming in that will bring up the show. And, and so that's, that's a good thing. Cause you know, um, if, if it's going to, if they're going to watch that show and then they're going to come to a place like ours to see the history, actual history stuff, that's great. And, uh, so that, that's where that's, I applaud that, you know, um, and it, it, it's doing for them what Braveheart did for me when, when they do that. So uh, we have had a Outlander group come in for uh, tours of the museum that's based, I think, in Asheville. Um, and they put together an Outlander convention out by us, too, in, in the Asheville area. Um, and I remember those ladies giving them a tour. <laughs> and... Um, uh, but yeah, we really do get, get the people bring, bringing it up. It's not, like I said, it's not every person that comes through the door, uh, but I do believe it has helped. There are in fact quite a few Scottish cultural themed events, as I understand it, in and around the area where the museum is. You've mm -hmm. got obviously the Grandfather Mountain Highland Games in mm -hmm. Linville, which is huge. There's a thing called the Gathering on the Ridge that's nearby, and then Fraser's Ridge Homecoming in Ferguson. Uh, all of that, of course, relative to Outlander. And even uh, Outlander author, and I, I'll, I always murder her name, uh, Diana uh, Gabaldon. Or mm -hmm. Gabaldon. I, I um, think the, the first way you said it is right. Yeah, Ga I don't uh, think Gabaldon? it's right. Yeah. A lot of people used to say Gabaldon. Yeah. I think it's Gabaldon. Yeah. 
but uh, I'm, okay. I could be wrong. We'll go with I, that. And... Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> she'll write yeah. in. That's not how my name is. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, I'm. I'm sure that uh, if she does write in, I'll have her on the podcast. And if, right. and if not, I'm sure there'll be people who will tell us anyway. Yeah. Uh, but but I, my point was that she has even said that Fraser's Ridge, the, the setting for the show in the last in seasons four and five, it would actually be found near Boone and, and Blowing Rock. And you know these locations better than I do. I guess where I'm going with this is I was not aware that the Scottish heritage is as deeply ingrained in North Carolina as I'm getting the impression that it is. Well, uh, there is a long history of it. It is one of the um, one of the states in the U.S. that has some of the highest census records of uh, currently uh, of people claiming to have Scottish ancestry. Um, it's not the largest now. People like to say that North Carolina has the most Scots. I, I always uh, cheekily answer the uh, the place with the most Scots is Scotland. Um, the <laughs> the um, the state with the most uh, Scottish descendants uh, today, and I actually researched this because I actually had to teach a class on a lot of this stuff here at the museum. Uh, is actually California, and most people are kind of shocked by that. I'm like, yeah, the most the, the state uh, well, that boasts. I'm to surprised have, to hear that. Yeah, the state that boasts to have, as far as what people record in their census, you know, stuff to have uh, Scottish ancestry is is California, at least from the last census. I suspect that if more people were interested in their genealogy, uh, they would find out that they probably have Scottish ancestry as well. And a lot of people that are claiming to be Irish probably aren't Irish and they're probably, probably Scottish, Scots Irish. right. Uh, or right. some variety of, and they, you know, they just haven't really worked that out yet. So, um, so it could be higher. It could be the most, yeah, I, I try to push here, um, whatever I can have on documentation as, as fact. So, well, it's it, and the whole Scots Irish thing is, is a mm. whole other subject and another story. In fact, yes. uh, last year I visited Belfast for the first time and um, and 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 sat down with uh, folks uh, in the Ulster Scott Society there and had them on the show. And I am, I guess you would say, an Ulster Scot mm-hmm. because my ancestors were Scottish uh, in the Lowlands in the Ayrshire area, and then immigrated across as part of the uh, Ulster plantation, and then another generation on two generations on came to the United States. And, and some people therefore would say I could lay claim to Irish heritage. And a lot of people say, well, I'm Scots Irish or, or they use the term Scotch Irish, which right. I absolutely hate. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole nother story. Yeah. But I've always looked at it from the standpoint, I, I consider myself to be of Scottish ancestry because my ancestors started in Scotland. They then moved on to Ireland and then moved on to the United States. Well, as an American, that's like I was born and raised in Texas. I happen to have moved on to California, moved back to Texas and moved now to where I live in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't consider myself Louisianan and I'm not a Californian. Mm -hmm. I am a Texan. That's where I was born. That's where my history starts. So I've always looked at myself as I have Scottish ancestry. It's an interesting dilemma to get into, I suppose, that another story for another day. You talked about teaching a class. And one of the things that I know the museum does, or I believe the museum does, is a certain amount of educational outreach. I know you're open for tours, group tours mm-hmm. with schools and things of that sort. Tell me a little bit about the work like that that goes on at the museum. Right. Um, 
the the education is actually if I was going to uh, sort of reference Star Trek, it's kind of our prime directive almost because, you know, we're, we're a heritage center and, and it's about getting the, the historical information out there. Um, our big service that we do is using reference books to show people their suggested tartans. Okay. That's, that's our big thing. We do it in the gift shop. We do it when we go away to the Highland Games. That's what we do. And if people ask any more information about that tartan, or if it's a clan tartan, or their name in general, if there's some information, we do whatever we can with whatever amount of resources that we are in possession of. Um, so that is our our main thing that we do, aside from having the museum and then also having a gift shop that, you know, sells goods to keep the museum open. After that, then if people want a tour, which uh, we are actually low staffed. So that happens very seldom now. Usually, I think all of our tours in the last three or four years have all been um, tours that were um, scheduled to, to happen. So uh, usually by at least two weeks notice. Uh, and that, technically I'm the only tour guide that's here now. So, um, it has to be a day that I can be here if they're going to come through or I have to clear up my schedule. Uh, but we will do it. Our museum is designed to be self-guided. There is actually no need for a tour guide whatsoever. And in, if you go through our museum on your own, it'll take you about the same amount of time as it is going to take me to give you a verbal tour. And, uh, cause is now that it's two floors, it takes almost two hours for me to do a proper tour. And it takes about two hours to read every bit of verbiage that's on the wall or walls, I should say, in the, in the museum when you go through it. Um, and our big thing here is really sort of getting the, uh, the understanding of what tartan is, uh, dispelling the myths surrounding it, and especially Highland dress. And, uh, and now we are, we're also delving into the, let's start teaching more of the general history as well. Uh, one of the things I've already done here at the museum, I started a living history group with our museum. And we do a broad spectrum of errors. The, the main focus of our, our group is to show uh, what people wore in the different eras instead of just dressing everybody up in a kilt and saying, yeah, that's what they wore back in 1200, whatever. Cause you know, obviously they didn't. So, um, and the name of the group, it's, it's kind of modeled after the museum and it's, I used the Gallic, but I didn't, I didn't do grammatical, grammatically correct. I kind of did that on purpose uh, because people struggle <laughs> with, with it. So I just called it Brecken clan. Instead of Clan of Brecken, which basically is Clan of the Tartan or Tartan Clan. So let's talk for a moment about the gift shop then. It looks like you have a fairly extensive collection of Tartan for someone in the United States who wants to perhaps visit and then go in and, and say, okay, what's my clan and, and go out the door with their quote unquote Tartan. It looks like you're pretty well equipped to deal with that. For the most part, yes. Um, we have... Um, a pretty well-stocked gift shop. 
uh, of a wide variety of items. So a tartan is obviously our number one focus. So we have, we try to keep uh, small tartan items in stock. We don't stock kilts. We do sell kilts, but we sell tailor-made in Scotland kilts, you know. Uh, so uh, we also have a stateside kilt maker for certain styles of kilts that they don't make in Scotland. We're we're out to sell at the highest quality that we can. So, uh, but you can come in and you can you can order your kilt, or you can do it over the phone. You can actually do it online from us. But we stock the small items like the ties and the scarves. Uh, we also were probably the first vendor that I'm aware of, at least on the east, southeastern area, that started at selling uh, swatches in, in, in large quantities. Um, so because we started to realize that people weren't uh, buying the other small tartan items as often as they used to. Uh because uh, at a certain point, people stopped buying, like ladies stopped buying sashes. And they went to just buying scarves. The scarf is shorter, less money. And now people aren't, some don't even want to buy a scarf. Because they say, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to wear that. But they'll buy a swatch. They'll frame it and hang it on the wall. Or they'll put it in a family yeah. keepsake book. And the swatch is $5. You know? <laughs> So we stock a lot of swatches and uh, we actually order the fabric and cut it up ourselves. But that's not all we have in the gift shop. You want to buy your skiing dues. You want to buy all your kilt outfit accessories. We stock those. We stock, you know, the kilt socks, the kilt hose. We stock those in like just about every color you can think of. Uh, garter ties, you know, the garter flashes and, and the traditional ties. We sell those uh, for the for the kilt socks. We'll, we'll stock dirks. Uh, we sell, you know, basket hilts and claymores for people marching in the tartan parades and stuff like that. We we sell, you know, like the, the Walker shortbread. We sell history books. We sell Scottish tea. Uh all kinds of stuff. It's, it's, we really have a really wonderful gift shop. And if we didn't have a gift shop, there would be no museum. We've discussed the fact that you've essentially sort of resolved the future of the museum with a long-term lease now and in a building owned by a person who is obviously um, holds the museum in high regard. Uh, Where do you see the museum going in the next five, 10, 20 years? Five, 10, 20 years. Well, um, the, the next big phase is actually we're in the middle of it already, which is we're renovating uh, the downstairs galleries. Um, we've already redone the lighting downstairs. There's no more, there's no more uh, fluorescent lighting. Uh, there used to be fluorescent lighting, which we hated that. But with this money grants that we got, we were able to put in uh, LED lights all over the place. So we only have LED lights now. Um, so we, our lights don't, you know, damage the clothes. Um, the, the next phase after that will be, um, will be probably redoing the floors downstairs in some capacity. Don't know exactly what we're going to do yet. Um, and then after that, 
um, we're actually, there's not a lot we can do with the building. Uh, cause some of the rooms, uh, that are adjacent to the museum downstairs are going to be, um, storage rooms to be rented out. So we can't like knock walls down and expand again. And upstairs we can't expand anymore. So, so that's why I, I have started making, uh, some of the displays rotational so that, uh, we can show different things, different years. Uh, the, the other things that I plan will be just more educational outreach as much as we can. You would love to come through the museum. Uh, when most people come to the museum, uh, if they're really into this part of their heritage, or even if mildly, they, when they see all the tartans, when they walk through the door, because that's what you see first, by the way, it's kind of, it's very much overwhelming. And uh, it, it's, it's really nice to see that on people's faces when they come in the door. And then when they go through the museum, they're usually very shocked that we have the amount of educational and entertaining aspects to the museum that we have. My thanks to my guest, Daniel Williamson, curator of the Scottish Tartans Museum and Heritage Center in North Carolina. The museum's normal operating hours are 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Saturday, but that is subject to change given the current pandemic, so you're well advised to check ahead. As Daniel mentioned, membership and gift shop sales help keep the museum financially viable. And you can find information about both by following the link to the museum's website, which is found in our show notes on our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Now, we've been trying to learn more about the Scottish Tartans Authority's plans for a National Tartan Center. Their website talks glowingly about such a project, but sadly, our efforts to reach out, including extending an invitation to appear here on this podcast to talk about the project, have so far been ignored. We remain hopeful that we can bring you an update about a National Tartan Center on some future episode. Finally, while there are official clan tartans, one important tartan myth to dispel is that only members of a clan can wear their tartan. In truth, anyone of any nationality or heritage can wear any tartan they like. Further, it is possible for anyone to design and name their very own tartan, just as I've done with my Glen Moyer tartan. You can actually learn more about that too on our website if you're interested. And we hope to have some other exciting news to share with you about tartan in the coming weeks. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapolev, I guess Alpha Gubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Or get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol, tartansky. And thank you for listening.